Welcome to Friendship Vallejo. I'm Pastor Justin, and this is the place where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything is possible. Revelation chapter 2. Paul John is writing this letter, and he receives something directly from God about the pure faithfulness of God and calls out our lack of faithfulness too. Here's the good news. God only calls out what he's compelling to his heart. God only calls out what he's compelling to his heart. Here's what I want you to hear as we go into Revelation today. Jesus calls you out when he sees something in you. He never calls you out when he doesn't want to bring you to better. And the great news about all of it you know his voice. I'm going to back up and say that again. You know his voice. He calls you out because you heard him first. And you may not like what he has to say, but he only calls you out because he's compelling you to conform you to be in his image. And today we see that with the church at Ephesus. Grab your Bibles. Revelation chapter 2, beginning at verse number 1. It says these words. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them to be false. You've persevered and endured hardships for my name. You've not grown weary, yet I hold this against you, Jesus says. You have forsaken your first love. Consider how far you've fallen, repent, and do the things you did at first. And if you don't repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the Nicolaitans, and I hate them too. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who is victorious. Lay your hands on yourself. Say, I am victorious. When I say, lay your hands on yourself, say, I am victorious. Now touch someone around you. Say, you are victorious. So this is what God says to you. If you have the victory, I hope you hear me. If you trust that you have victory, this is the guarantee. He will give you the right to eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God. You may be seated even in the presence of the Lord. We're in the Bible app. Those of you who want to follow along with us in the Bible app, I'm so grateful for all of you being here this morning. It's so good to see you. To all of our guests who are here for the very first time, it is such an honor to be present with you and engage with you. Please fill out those connection cards. What we do is we take, and for every filled out connection card, we donate $5 to our nonprofit. And so you are helping people you'll never meet. And uh, so please be sure to fill that connection card out and we donate someone else. And so I'm grateful you're here. And of all the places you could have clicked to, those of you tuned in online, please be sure to like and subscribe on YouTube and to like and share this post on Facebook. I'm so glad you're here with us today. Let's see what God has to say to the church at Ephesus. I believe he's talking to us as well. You know, so I have a truck. It is, his name is Maverick. It's a GMC. Ain't nothing better than a man in his truck. I don't care what nobody says. I love my truck. And about it. So Courtney wants to drive my truck, and I got to hit her hand when she grabs the keys because don't nobody drive my truck. It's my truck. I, I got my, my seat is perfect. I can tell what she got in it because the seat's all weird. My seat is perfect. My air is perfect. I got everything perfect in my truck. So we'd be going places and uh, we were going to Home Goods one day and we, I knew, you know, I don't like using GPS. I don't because I like, I know where I'm going, right? I'm a man. I know where I'm going and you know, whatever, right? And so I know where I'm going and so thank you. And so I get in my truck and my wife wanted to go to Home Goods. And we're driving to Home Goods. I know Home Goods is like 15 minutes away in certain directions. I know landmarks. I'm going to Home Goods. And, you know, 20 minutes go by. And like 30 minutes goes by. And we're having fun. Cam is singing in the back. Court and I, we got a podcast. So we're like, we're talking about our podcast. And like 35 minutes goes by. And Courtney goes, back, baby, um, just, do you know where you're going? Yes, I know exactly where I'm going. I had no clue because I was trying to figure out where the sun was, and I knew that it was east from my house. I'm like, hey, what time of day it is? So I know I got to get someplace because the sun, okay, so the sun rises over here, sets over here. So I'm trying to figure out where Home Goods is. And so eventually, we're driving for about 45 minutes. My wife is like, babe, like, do you know how to get to Home Goods? And so we put it in the GPS, 
just to get directions and found out we were literally right around the corner from Home Goods. We were driving in circles in the wrong direction. We were having fun. We were having fun. We were doing all the fun stuff. We were being a family. We are having fun. We are listening to music. We are having my wife and I having great conversation. We are doing fun stuff in the wrong direction. And all we had to do was ask for directions. Talking to people in the building today where that's your life. You're doing the right stuff. The Christian life can get so, we get so caught up in doing the right stuff, doing the spiritual stuff, going to church, doing the stuff, wearing the stuff, that it's possible for many of us that today as I'm talking to you, you are doing the right thing in the wrong direction. Jesus is having a conversation with the church at Ephesus. He speaks through his prophet John and the former pastor of this church, John, who talks about this last week, exiled into the island of Patmos, some seven miles off the coast of Asia Minor. And John is sitting there and Jesus begins to minister to him. He can't see anything but the place he may be to die. And as he's sitting on that island, Jesus shows up and says, John, write some letters to the different churches in Asia Minor, modern day Turkey. And so every letter has the same kind of breakdown. I want to give you the breakdown. If you have the, uh, the, the sermon sheets, you see the breakdown of it. Every one of the seven letters to the seven churches is the same kind of breakdown. First of all, Jesus says, this is who I am. That's Christ's character. So before Jesus explains it, then he gives you his character. Secondly, Jesus says, this is what you're doing well. That's Christ's commendation, right? Third, Jesus says, this is what you're doing wrong. That's Christ's correction. Fourth, this is how to correct it. That's Christ's exhortation. And lastly, here's the promise to those who overcome. That's Christ's promise. And then you get a one-sentence summary that I'll give you to sum up every letter to the church. So let's begin this one by looking at Christ's character. And so we're in chapter 2, but I want you to go back to chapter 1, verses 19 through 20. So you can see the establishment of the language. So remember, a lot of the language you see in the book of Revelation is not similar to our language today. Literally, the way that they had light inside of their houses and lights inside of their churches were lampstands, right? They, they would look in the stars, and stars for them were representations of being with God at night. So a lot of the language we see was cultural. So prophetic literature, we talked about this last week, ministers to the time and to those who hear it. And so it's always, every time God reveals something prophetically is to conform us to the image of Jesus. So to grab a hold of this, go back to chapter 1, verse 19 through 20. It says these words, if we're going to get Christ's character. Write, therefore, what you've seen, what is now, and what will take place later, Jesus tells John. The mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So then chapter 2, verse 1. The, to the angel of the church at Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hands and walks among the seven lamp, golden lampstands. So this helps us. Let me explain what this is. The seven stars that he says are the angels of the seven churches. I don't know if you have heard this, like these old pastors would get up and be like, you know, to God, whatever, whatever, and to the angel of this house, right? That ain't, we, we are not the angels of God's church. What we believe, in accordance to Zechariah, we're going to go there in a second, is that the angel of the church is a supernatural being who's assigned to every particular church. That's the best interpretation that God has in the songs you hear, the heavenly host. The heavenly hosts, we believe, are the grouping of the angels who are assigned to God's church. And so God is in the midst of these seven spirits and the stars, seven angels, identifies the seven churches. Now, the lampstands we see here are nothing but seven lamps. They're just simply, and they're going to come up on the screen, they're menorah branches. So the same thing you see for Hanukkah, the imagery that John was seeing here is this. And the reference we have for this is back in the book of Zechariah and Zechariah chapter 4. In Zechariah chapter 4, he's prophetically speaking to the people and says this, Who dares despise the day of small things? Since, here's this, the seven eyes of the Lord that range throughout the earth rejoice when they see the chosen capstone in the hand of Zerubbabel. What the seven eyes of the Lord, we believe, are the angels that are assigned, that the angels are God's eyes into the world. And they report back to God what's going on in the world. And so this is then the angels are the eyes of God in the world. And so in Eric and Carol uh, Meyer's commentary on Haggai and Zechariah, they say that the eyes of Yahweh are language that's used of God's omniscience and God's omnipresence. Now let me tell you this. God is omniscient, 
God is omnipresent. Satan isn't. Satan is just looking for an opportunity. That's so good. I'm going to say it again. I said, God is omniscient. God is omnipresent. Satan isn't. All Satan needs and looks for is an opportunity. And the moment we take our eyes off the one who has his eyes on us is the moment Satan gets an opportunity. Churches are not falling apart because of foolishness. They're falling apart because we've forgotten the omniscience, all-knowing, omnipresence, all-present power of God and have given Satan opportunity. Satan is not as smart as we think Satan is, but all he needs is a Cain and Abel. Sin is crouching at your door, so shut the door. All right, so here's the, so because God is described like this, this agency, the heavenly host, God has angels that are going to and from the world, and they're keeping track of what's going on. So then he's writing the letter not to the church, but to the angel of the church. And this angel, we believe, was going to make sure this language was explained to the people in the church. And so Jesus, imagine this, is walking among the seven golden lampstands. Imagine this imagery. He's walking among the divine council, the board of directors for the seven churches in Asia Minor. And God tells John to write a letter concerning the angel of the church of Ephesus to tell them that we're going to respect the angel's work. And this is what the angel has seen and has reported to God. And this is God's report on the church at Ephesus. So why does this matter? Here's what I want you to see here. This was personal for the church at Ephesus. Remember that Paul was pastoring in Ephesus for some three years. And here's what Paul would do, actually. Paul would leave out of his house, and from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m., Paul would sit in the center of the city, and he would expound upon Jesus in light of stoic thought. It was amazing. Paul was there for three years. Then John was the pastor of the church at Ephesus before Domitian expelled him to the island of Patmos. So what does this mean to us? Jesus is taking his church personal, and he's putting himself in the middle of his church. How do you act and respond knowing that Jesus is watching your worship? Does it change anything for you? Here's the thing. Something ought to be different knowing that Jesus is in the room, that he is personally watching what we do. Don't believe me. So Monday and Fridays, my wife and I go get breakfast in Napa. And uh, one of my little favorite coffee shops is right next to this wine place called Housely Wine. Before y'all judge me, I've seen y'all at Housely Wine. Y'all know exactly where Housely Wine is. Y'all know where Brown Downtown Napa is. So y'all can get bougie if you want to. But y'all been right up there in Housely, been right behind you in line to get that 2021, right? So it is what it is. So in Jesus' name. So, um, so we sat there. And so one day, I was walking by the coffee shop. Don't y'all judge me. But one day I was walking by the coffee shop and I looked inside and I saw Tamara Maori. Sister, sister, right? I saw that. I got so excited. I was like, oh my God, tea is better, but Tamara Maori, right? And so I text my wife, hey babe, Tamara Maori is inside the coffee shop, right? I hope Tia comes. I hope Taj comes. I hope the whole family comes. So I walk into the coffee shop. Coffee's terrible. I'm walking by Tamara Maori. I'm like, I got my own mind, I got my own style, right? I'm trying to be like, do you see, like, oh my God, it's Chimera Maury. So now I go to this coffee shop in hopes to get a glimpse of sister, sister. Like, it's freaking sister, sister, right? Like, we grew up with this stuff. So I'm hoping to see this, hoping smart guy shows up. Like, I just want to see the whole family. And so we go to this coffee shop. The coffee is terrible. Service is terrible. But all I want to know is maybe Temerity and Taj will be in the building. When we come to church and we are guaranteed that Jesus is going to be here and nothing about us changes. We are guaranteed that every time you walk here, you don't have to hope a celebrity is in the room. You are guaranteed that Jesus is here. And it's amazing. We love that scripture where two or three gather touching and agreeing when you have a failed ministry meeting. Like, you ever seen churches that just start, well, two or three a year, so Jesus is in the midst. But then when 75 show up, where did Jesus go? When 150 show up, why is it so difficult to worship with more than two or three people? Because maybe we've used Jesus to soothe our ego and not trust that Jesus' presence is in the room. 
What would happen if on the way to church you read Revelation chapter 1? You are the alpha. You are the omega that Jesus is in the room. Jesus cares personally about his church. That's his character. So what's his commendation? So he cares about us. Look at verse number 2. So here's where he commends us. Verse number 2, he says this, I know your deeds. I know your hard work, your perseverance. I know you cannot tolerate wicked people that you've tested those who claim to be apostles, but they're not. You found them to be false. You persevered. You've endured hardships for my name, and you have not grown weary. Jesus comes back, and he says, I know your deeds. The Greek word there is the word gnoso, meaning I'm beginning to know. I have the knowledge of that. I am constantly watching you, that I'm building a knowledge base about you, that you're not fully done because Jesus is showing you more about himself. He says, I know your deeds. And this is a very real commendation because it's important to put the context of Ephesus at the time. There's a picture of Medusa, if you guys can put it up on the screen. So in the city of Ephesus, there were 15 different pagan gods that were people were worshiping. You had Medusa's, you had Medusa's uh, temple inside of the city, the temple of Apollos, Melutus inside of the city. These temples were where people would sacrifice to the gods of sex, the gods of fertility, the gods of hope, the gods of grain, the gods of harvest. There were 14 15 different pagan gods. And the next slide is going to show you one of the seven wonders of the world before it was destroyed called the Temple of Artemis. And at the Temple of Artemis, they worshiped someone called the goddess Diana. And what they believed is that if you rubbed Diana, if you went to the Temple of Diana, um, you can go to the, the video, sorry, the video of Diana. You go to the Temple of Diana, and people would rub on the, the tree of life. They would rub on this, and she was the multi-breasted god. And here's how terrible it was. They would rub on this goddess, believing that there was going to be fertility. And the benediction, like, you know how we lift our hands and now he was able to keep us. The benediction of places like this in these pagan temples it's, were orgies. Like, they, that's how they would close out service. They would practice what they rubbed on by literally inside of this temple practicing fornication and foolery. This temple was about four football fields long. So these individuals, not only was that it, but in the center of the city was the mall. And in order to go into the mall for the shops and everything, they would have to take incense and spread incense into the waterfall for good vibes, good luck. This place was rampant with religious fervor. It was rampant with sex and idolatry. It was rampant with fornication. And God looks at the church at Ephesus and says, here's how great you are. You are doing your very best to change a culture that cannot stand Jesus. Jesus comes along and says, I know how hard it's been. I know you want to go to the temple of Diana. I know you have people who are barren. I know you want to have children. I know you want to see increase, but you refuse to bow at the whims of culture. Jesus says, I commend you. He commends three things of their work. He says, first of all, I know your deeds. The word there is the word hardworking, to toil, to work to exhaustion. Jesus says, you've worked until you've had calluses. You've worked, you're exhausted. You got sweat, you got blood, you have tears. Jesus says, you are doing so much hard work to build the kingdom. Jesus says, I commend you. Secondly, Jesus commends their courage or their orthodoxy. Orthodoxy is doctrinal truth and teaching. Jesus says, you are holding fast to the truth of the word of the word of God. The church, y'all, was growing so rapidly that everybody wanted a stage to teach on. And what they would do in apostolic teaching is they would not let everybody get a mic because they said, we're going to hold fast to the truth of what God said. And the truth of what God said is found in Acts chapter 20. So if you have your Bibles, let me show you this. In Acts chapter 20, verse number 25, let me show you what he commends for them, their orthodoxy, their doctrinal truths and practices. Paul was saying this to the church at Ephesus when he pastored them. He says, now I know that none of you among whom I've gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again when he's leaving. So I tell the church, I'm innocent of the blood of any of you. I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Verse 29, so I know after I leave, savage wolves are going to come in and not spare the flock. Even from your own number, people will arise and distort the truth in order to draw disciples after them. So be on their, your guard. And you know what they did? 
Y'all, they were on their guard. Ah, they stood their ground. If you came in, weren't preaching the gospel, they kicked you out. They made sure that no false doctrine, no false teaching was inside of the church at Ephesus. And Jesus says, I commend you. I commend your work. I commend your orthodoxy. And then he commends their consistency. Twice he says, I see you're persevering. You have endured and not grown astray. The word perseverance in the Greek there is the word hupomena, or to be under something. So what did they remain under? They remained under suffering, oppression, and resistance. And here's what they learned how to do. They learned not to grin and bear it, but they grinned with glory. And that's the nature of James chapter 1, when it says, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. What's the temptation? To turn my back on Jesus. And he is saying, Jesus is saying, when the world has tried to get you to turn your back on on Jesus, you didn't do it. I commend you. He says, you've kept your oil, you've kept your gift as pure as you possibly could in this church, in the midst of Roman persecution, in the midst of sin, in the midst of idolatry. And then y'all, not just that, but you saw me put Medusa on the screen. There were people in Ephesus who were literally fighting actual demons Like demon activity was unsettling there. There were people who were literally one of the churches, oracles were summoning from gods and goddesses at the temple of Didymus in Ephesus. They were summoning demons from the underworld to work in Ephesus to kill the church. Hear me, that people would literally stand outside of the church of Ephesus trying to send demons into the people who are worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ on their Sabbath. This is why, hallelujah, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6 that you have to put on the whole armor of God because you don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Now, put this in context. I'm loving this. I'm all, okay. Put this in. So, you don't wrestle against flesh and blood because remember what they would do in church to cement what they heard from the goddesses, they would literally wrestle sexual with flesh and blood that by cutting themselves, by marking themselves to be of demonic forces and they would have massive orgies to end their service. So Paul is saying, listen, your oil is bigger than flesh and blood. Your oil destroys curses. Your oil destroys strongholds. Woe unto us, hallelujah, for misusing and weaponizing your oil for petty stuff. Like y'all are fighting people in your family. You're fighting people at work and using you speaking in tongues to get people on your job to leave you alone. Where Jesus says, no, you are too anointed to use your oil on flesh and blood because you don't fight flesh and blood. I kill demons. God, I wish I had somebody. I cast out devils. I I wish I had somebody in the building. I destroy curses. I destroy strongholds because Jesus didn't die for me to argue with people. He died so that every person around me can be blessed. Every person around me knows who Jesus is. So I don't wrestle with you. I wish I had a witness in here that the reason your home is so dysfunctional, you getting too comfortable with demons. The reason your job is dysfunctional is you getting too comfortable with demons, but I wish I had some Holy Ghost baptized folk in the building that can testify, I'm going to walk into my job. Demon, you can't wrestle here. Demon of depression, you can't live here. Demon of anxiety, you can't hold me. Demon of anger, you can't stop me because Jesus didn't die for me to waste my oil, but I come that you might have life and have it abundantly. If anointed people woke up, oh my God. I'm tired of walking over skeletons when I tell dead things to come to life. I'm tired. I wish I had a witness. I'm tired of what it means to let American capitalism dictate to me whether or not I'm wealthy. My God owns a cattle on a thousand hills. My God came that I might have abundant life. My God says that nothing will harm me because God is for me. You are too anointed to sleep on yourself. I'm tired of sleepy, anointed people. I'm tired of lazy, anointed people. Too much blood was spilt for you, for you to weaponize your gift. Jesus says, you've been working. You've been, your orthodoxy has been wonderful. And you have been consistent. And then after all of that, Jesus says, oh, but let me tell you something else, church at Ephesus. It's easy to shout on the commendation 
But you got to look at the correction. Verse 4, Jesus says, but I have something against you. You're doing all that work. Y'all shout, y'all sanctified, y'all feel, you're doing all that stuff. But you have forgotten your first love. The word first love there in the Greek is the word motivation. He says you have forgotten your motivation. What Jesus is addressing is it is not about what you do. It's about why you do it. And Jesus says, Ephesians, y'all are busy, but your heart ain't in it. Motivation tells us and teaches us that we can work ourselves to the point of exhaustion. You can read your scriptures, you can come to church every Sunday, and you can be so joyful like I was in the car, having fun, having great conversation, headed in the wrong direction. And the only person who wastes time is you. What Jesus did for all of us in his death, his burial, and resurrection was awaken our hearts. Can, have you ever considered what it costs Jesus to redeem you? Like, no, 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 no. Have you ever considered what, I mean, we get weird when you got a paper cut. Like, oh, my God, my whole day is over. Like, ugh. you got a hangnail. I got to go get my nails done. Like, my whole life is just done because I got a hangnail. Jesus literally had flesh ripped from his body so you don't have to. That's affection. And Jesus says, you've lost your love for me. These were individuals who 40 years ago walked with Jesus. So this is not a matter of like you didn't see it. These people were there when in the middle of the day, God covered up the sun so we could focus on his. And Jesus says, you've forgotten me. You've taken your eyes. And I'm talking to people in the building on the verge of burnout that you are so consumed with work and more work and more work that Jesus says, no, I'm, I, I sent Pastor Justin today to tell you that you're serving, you're coming to church, you're singing, you're shouting, you're doing all this stuff, but you're doing it without me. The scary truth, church, is there's a lot of us who are doing Christian stuff, but have forgotten Christ. Mm -hmm. Healing people, casting out demons, working your fingers to the bone, putting it on Facebook. Make sure everybody knows what you do and how saved you are, how sanctified you are. Sharing scriptures every day, going in the wrong direction. Jesus says you've forgotten your motivation because you're not motivated by Jesus. You're motivated by popularity, by history, by everybody knows you, by your reputation, by being known. Because you're doing the good stuff in the wrong direction. Think about it. When it came to marriage, the time to get married. Did you really want a Christian marriage or did you want to be like other church people you went to church with? Because the reason you lost your mind when their marriage fell apart is because your hope was not in Jesus building your marriage. I ain't scared of none of y'all. Your hope was in what somebody else's marriage looked like. When it, came to, when it comes to raising your children, have you checked in with your children and done a spiritual gifts assessment with them? Have you laid hands on your children and said, God, tell me the gifts they have so I can make sure that my resources will be poured into them? Or did you tell your daughter she will do this? You tell your son what they will do and haven't asked Christ what he's called them to do? Doing the right thing in the wrong direction. I'm talking to leaders in the building. Have you had time? Have you taken a chance to talk to your team Do you have a, to make sure that the vision you have that's bigger than them and you, they understand where their gifts flow? Or are you just telling them what they will do and what they won't do because you're not leading a Christian space? You're leading a space where you're telling Christ, find a way to get in it. You're laboring with the wrong motivation. And Jesus says, whenever that happens, you've forgotten me. Here's two reasons I want to give you why I believe we abandon our first love. The first reason we abandon our first love, number one, is we think we're doing a lot of good things. Oh, I mean, like, Monday, you got, the, you got the sorority meeting. And Tuesday, you got your PTA meeting. And Wednesday, you come to church for small groups. And on Thursday, you got some other community meeting. On Friday, you out serving so-and-so. On Saturday, you serving so-and-so. And you got busyness is not a badge of honor. So you got school, you got work, you got job, you got church, you got money, you got community, you got this, you got that, you got this. And Jesus says, like, no, like, you're doing a lot of good stuff. But the reason you're so tired, because you never burn out when you're working in your gift. You do burn out when you're walking in your talents. I learned my talent. I was given my gift. 
My gift says Jesus is standing up in me. My talent said this is what I learned to sustain myself in the world. So you never just like run away from Jesus though. You're doing good things. What happens is you begin to social distance yourself from Jesus. So you wake up in the morning, you listen to a podcast. Jesus, you know my heart. Like, I didn't read my scripture, but Jesus, you know I'm a good person. And I listen to a podcast. And then now you begin to distance yourself from your Bible reading time. And then you begin to distance yourself from your fasting time. And then you go to small groups and you begin to distance yourself because people start holding you accountable. And you begin to distance yourself because I don't want to be held accountable and I don't have to read my Bible. And then all of a sudden, next thing you know, you've been doing small steps and small steps And you're serving in the community, you're doing all this stuff, but now you and Jesus are distant. This doesn't happen immediately. It's small steps in the wrong direction. You don't believe me. Everybody go to your Bibles to Psalm number one. Let me show you in Psalm number one how sin works, how this distancing happens. For some of you, I really want you to see this, and I hope to awaken something in you. This is what happens, how we distance ourselves from Jesus. We're doing good stuff in the wrong direction. Look at Psalm number one. Blessed is the one. Who does not walk in step with the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the company of mockers? Look at the process of sin. Sin is not immediate. You walked with it. You thought about it. You you stopped and you stood there. And then eventually you made a home there. I'll use this example. So we're trying to lose some weight at our house. I know I look slim. I look great. Anyway, so we're trying to lose some weight. And so the reward I have is I buy some Oreos. I get a pack of Oreo, Oreo Thins because I'm trying to be healthy. So I get some Oreo Thins, right? <laughs> if you eat five of those, it's like eating like, like you know what I mean? Like, you don't know what it is. Anyway, so I get Oreo Thins. And so what I did was we buy the Oreo Thins once a month. And I put the Oreo Thins at the top level of our pantry downstairs. So I'll be cooking. I finished cooking after I had a whole week of good meals. I walk by the pantry and just look at them thins, right? Then I walk back again. I just keep thinking about it. Like, man, those would be some good cookies. I just keep walking. I don't get it. But I'm not thinking about anything else. All I'm thinking about, this is how sin happens, is I'm Oreo thins. And then Cam's like, Daddy, can I have some cookies? Now, I didn't ask for the cookies. Cam asked for the cookies. So I didn't do it. Facebook did. I didn't do it, but someone said this about me, so I got I to prove. So I get this. I get my cookies down. I don't eat them. I'm just standing in front of them. And as long as I don't open them, it's not my fault. Cam says I want cookies. Cam opens the cookies. I didn't open them. Now I'm sitting on the couch with 10 cookies. This is how sin works. This is how distance from Jesus works. You begin to walk with it. You begin to contemplate it. You cast blame on others. You stand there, look at it. You stare at it. You look at it, you stare at it. Next thing you know, you're living in it. It's distancing yourself from Jesus. So for those of you today who feel like this is what's happening to you, you can look at different areas of your life. Man, I have not been in my scriptures for a minute. This is the first time I've been in a church in a minute. I, I, I haven't engaged in groups. I haven't engaged in this. I haven't read anything. This is where God is maybe calling you. Hey, hold on. Before you sit down away from me. Start walking in the truth again. Start trusting me. Because let me tell you this, doing good things without Jesus will never win. You are not as powerful as Jesus. Doing good things with Jesus will give you authority. You don't even know what's possible. So you do good things. That's how we distance ourselves from Jesus. And secondly, what we distance ourselves from Jesus is equating church work with being Christian. Equating the work of, listen, we live in America and there are certain talents we need to make the church work because we got to do stuff like, you know, taxes and finances and sign checks and all this type of stuff. What happens in our church is that we tell people to do stuff out of the goodness of their hearts, in their talents and not in their gifts. There is a massive difference between your church work and your Christian work. That's why we have staff. Like, we have staff we literally hire to do the stuff the world says we have to do to keep ourselves together. You, unfortunately, what church has done has burned out gifted people working in their talents. And I'm talking to a lot of you in the room who your stories you've shared with me, how this church has been a safe haven for you because we want you to work in your gift and you're trying to find yourself. Because for the first time you come to a church that says, we're not trying to abuse you, we just really need you to be who God has called you to be. I think about it. You've worked with kids all week. 
No, 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 back up. You work with somebody else's kids all week. Back up again. You worked with Bebe's kids all week for 80 hours spending your money on markers, your money on dry erase boards, your money on all of that. And then you mad as I'll get out on Saturday because now on Sunday for eight hours you can't go to worship. Now you got to go work with kids again. That's not talent. That's not gifting. That's it's talent. You need a space to reprieve and be with Jesus and then find where you're gifted. You, you run numbers at your job all week. You sitting in a dark room coding and breaking numbers as an accountant all week. You come to church and the first thing we want you to do, do more numbers out of the goodness of your heart. We burn out great people because the church is moving in the wrong direction. We attract a lot of you who are burned out. I've been there. You, you love Jesus, but you're tired. You go to church and you're saying, Pastor Justin, please don't ask me to do anything for a second because I'm just tired. And listen, I want to tell you this. I want you to stay here because Jesus wants you because he created you. And you don't have to prove yourself to me. You don't have to prove yourself to Jesus because you don't have to work hard for Jesus to love you. He already died. I'd rather have a gifted finance team than talented accountants. I'd rather, I wish I had a witness in here. I'd rather have gifted teachers for our children than just frustrated, not that our teachers are not this, but than frustrated people who are just, I just better do it. I'd rather have gifted people working with young adults than folk that can just say, I'm trying to replace my child who went to college. I'd rather have gifted people on the doors than people that say, I saw an empty door. God is telling us to walk in our gifts because you do not burn out when you're working with Jesus. That's his character. That's his commendation. That's his correction. So how do we correct this stuff? Well, look at his exhortation. Look at verse number five. He says, repent and do the things you did the first time. There it is. Jesus evaluates her church and her angel, and he says, repent, turn away, and do what you did when you first met me, because you, you know what it was like when you and I had a great relationship. Remember when you used to love reading your devotionals? Remember, remember, it's just you and me, when you, you loved getting into your word and you and God just never ran away. Remember when the Bible used to excite you when it wasn't a chore? Remember when you used to, watch this, when you used to know how to smile at work? Uh, like, go on, like, remember, like, when you used to, like, you got excited because, like, you were on the altar praying for that job and now you can't stand, like, remember when you used to know how to smile? Right? Jesus says, remember that? Let's build on that. Remember. That's why when you take communion, I want you to remember. Because the miracle is your memory. I want you to remember. On Monday, I was laying on our, our game room floor, and I had three different commentaries open. I had my computer open, and I was so excited. I was telling Cam about Revelation. He was like, what is Revelation? I'm telling my son about Revelation. My wife started crying. I said, Court, what's wrong? And she said, oh, my God, I have my Justin back. I said, what are you talking about? She said, this is the Justin I know who's going to take the scriptures and make them as clear as he possibly can because I'm happy to see my Justin again. A couple of weeks ago, I was preaching. Steve came up to me afterwards, and he embraced me. He said, man, I'm happy my pastor is back. I'm like, man, what's going on with you? He said, no, nah, man, you get so caught up with the stuff around that I'm happy that you got up there and opened that book again. And I'm sitting there like, man, no, I miss that Justin too, who loves Jesus, who will not, who will not manipulate the word, who will not complain about the gospel, but will stand flat-footed and preach the gospel. When is the last time you and Jesus checked in on you? Remember when you and Jesus used to get coffee together? Remember when you had that playlist on your phone and you and Jesus had some great time? Remember you used to work out to Jesus and not sexy red and ice spice? <laughs> Remember when you and Jesus were intimate? Remember you used to be on the floor praying for hours? Remember your prayer closet back when we had that movie that came out, The Prayer Room? And we had the prayer, everybody had a prayer closet, had notes all on this closet. Now you even know where the prayer closet is. Remember... When you and Jesus were at your best, what would happen if you and Jesus got there again? Because here's why it's so important. Jesus says, if you don't, I'll come and take the lampstand from you. 
what that word there is, church, is that Jesus is literally saying, I'll take my guardianship away from you. I'll take my hand off of you. That the worst thing is to be anointed and fired by God. Oof, the worst thing is to be anointed and God takes his hand off you. Jesus is telling them, I... The only thing I need you to do, if the only thing that's going to keep you on the journey, the only thing that's going to give you favor is you reading your scriptures, you being in community, I don't think that's too much for Jesus to ask. But you know what a lot of us do? Like, I'm just being honest. I think Jesus was a black man, and he pastored a bunch of black folk. Because as soon as Jesus says this, it's like real deep, like, repent. You see where you've fallen? Turn. Don't do it again. You know what Negroes do? Negroes be like, but Jesus, Jesus, hold up. Before I do that, because I don't want to be held accountable. Before I do that, Jesus, before I go and get back on my face, Jesus, I hate the Nicolaitans. That word got me so close. I hate them Nicolaitans. I can't stand them Nicolaitans down the street. I don't like the way Nicolaitans walk. I don't like the way Nicolaitans talk. Jesus says, before you open your mouth and tell me about what you hate, I don't like them either. Because for some reason, we have equated love for Jesus with hate towards something. Uh-huh. I ain't scared of none of y'all with a bad wig. I said we've equated love for something with hate towards something. Matter of fact, think about it like this. If I were to ask you what you hate, give me a second. Let me get my pen together. I could write down everything I hate about my job. Why do you like your job? Why do you show up? I need the money. No, 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 no. Take the money off it. Why do you, why did you pray to work at that place in the first place? But you can tell me everything you hate about your boss, about your coworkers, about where you go, about what you got. Why, why, you t- I ask you about your car. You hate everything about your car. I mean, everything. I can't stand this. If I only had this, only had, you hate everything. Hate for something is not the same as love for something. Come to church. What do you hate about the church? Give me a second. Let me just tell you what I hate about this church and what he's doing. How is I got everything to hate. Why did you show up? Well, go to your go to your family reunion. What do you hate about your family? Them Negroes ain't like you. Just got a whole list of everything you hate about your family. When is the last time you covered them in prayer? When's the last time you named what you love about it? When's the last time you named it? Because the reason curses are sitting in our churches, in our families, on our jobs, is because all you do is bring what Satan does, fits of rage and hatred to the places where Jesus has put you. We hate everything. Oh, my God. You go out to eat, you hate the waiter. Go out to eat, you hate the waitress. The food too cold, food too hot, doggone it. I got money to buy food. I'm going to eat my food. You go, to, you go to Kmart, you hate Kmart. Go to Walmart, you hate Walmart. Go to Target, you hate Target. It's too white at Target. It's too black at Walmart. I go, I go to Food Max, I hate Food Max. I go down the street, I hate this. Go to Nations, I hate Nations. Go to McDonald's, I hate McDonald's. Oh, my God. What do you like? Because we hate everything. Oh, my God. What do you love? No, seriously, what do you love? What do you love? Like, when's the last time you sat with yourself and said, this is what I love? Because we hate everything. You paid $50 million to get tickets to go to a basketball game, but hate the entire experience. Are you serious? Are you serious? But that's the world we live in. We hate everything. Jesus says, your hate for it? It's not the same as love for something. What do you love? That's why Jesus had a conversation with John after the resurrection. He comes up with John and he's like, hey, John, do you love me? John's like, he says, do you agape love me? And John's like, I mean, Jesus, come on, you know me. I, I phileo love you. I have a good friendship with you. And Jesus says, John, do you, do you agape love me? Jesus, you know me, you and I are really good friends. John, do you agape love me? fully love me. Jesus, we're really good. How do you respond to Jesus when he asks you, do you love me? Then go feed my sheep. Then go, go, go clothe the naked. Go, go feed those who are hungry. Go love yourself. No, do you love me? Great. Then love yourself. Don't bicker about yourself. Complain about yourself. Beat yourself down. There's so many of us who have killed ourselves in our mind before you even let somebody else do it. Jesus says, do you love me? Then go, build, and feed. Jesus says, because I don't want to take the lampstand from you. 
because you are so consumed with hatred that you've forgotten what love is. So then verse 7 ends it. Then he says, so here's the promise. If you do this, whoever has ears, let them hear. And to the one who's victorious, they will eat from the tree of life and be in my paradise. This is amazing to me because this is an Old Testament, New Testament connection. I'm finished. At the end of this letter, he makes a reference to a temple. And he says to them, those who are victorious will have access to the tree of life. It's going to come up on the screen, Temple of Diana, the picture of Diana. What people would do in Ephesus, the Temple of Artemis, Diana was on the outside of the temple. They would walk up to Diana. You would see her with the multi-breasted God. They would walk up to Diana. They would rub Diana. That was called the tree of life in Ephesus context. That was called the tree of life because if you rub the multi-breasted God, she would give you fertility. She would have, be able to have children. That's how you would get pregnant. So people who were hoping to become pregnant would come and rub on the multi-breasted God of Diana. Jesus says, if you trust me, I got a tree you don't have to trust. If you trust me, you don't have to rub that tree. I am the tree of life. Not just that, but the next slide, Jesus says, then here's what you do as well. Then you'll stay in the paradise of God. The word paradise is this. It's the garden that was in the governor's mansion. So this is the Emperor Domitian's mansion in Ephesus. I really want you to show this. So what would happen here is you see the boundaries around it. His security guards would be all the way around it. About three times a year, they would select one person from the city who would come into the garden with the governor, have an entire day, watch this, where it was just you and the governor hanging out in the garden. That's why we get the story of Jesus on the cross with Gesmus and Dismas on the cross. And he says, not tomorrow but today, you'll be with me in where? Paradise. He's saying, don't focus on death right now, Didymus. You're going to be in paradise with me. You're going to have some alone time with me for the rest of eternity. Jesus says, if you simply turn back to me, I'm going to give you access to paradise and you have nothing to worry about. So do you want what Jesus has for you, or do you want what the world has given you? And here's the one sentence summary I'll give you today. Activity without affection is an athema to the Lord. Athema means disgust to be put off by. So you having all this action without affection is disgusting to Jesus. And here's the thing I've, I've learned, and I'm, I'm in my seat. Maybe some of you are like me, and life has just been difficult. It's been different. When's the last time you've checked in with you? Because life has evolved you, but some of us have not trusted the evolution that Jesus has given you. You know, a year ago, I'm my th the second Sunday of February, as I preached my final sermon at my first church I was ever called to, I was living in the Northeast, so literally my life from that moment to now, I moved from the Atlantic to the Pacific. My family moved. I sold my first house, moved into an apartment. Then we moved into a house. My son was going into elementary school. I get here to a great, great church, and a month later, my mom gets sick, has a stroke. I go back a couple months later, become a caregiver, and then my mom completely just, she just dies. I lose my mother, my family is in a whole different space, meeting a whole bunch of great people. I get installed at an amazing church here at Friendship, and then all of a sudden my dad tries to come back in my life, and then that just became a whole mess. I had colleagues who promised to be there with me when my mother passed away. One of my spiritual fathers said that I was going to be there for you. I'm going to come out there and support you. And on Saturday said, I'm not coming. I had to stop everything I'm doing, fly back to preach on a Sunday morning. That broke me because I trusted him. And now he's just, no, him and I don't talk. My dad and I don't talk. I lost my mother. My family's all different. And then last Sunday, a colleague of mine gets installed at a church. And you know who's in the pulpit? My father. I'm looking at my father lay hands on another preacher, and he never came to my football games, never came. I didn't even know where this Negro was for 15 years, and I see him on Facebook in a shared picture. I mean, oh, my God, life has changed, and I had to stop on Tuesday and be like, Justin, how are you? So my question to you, church, I'm just being very vulnerable in this moment. Some of you in this room have experienced breakups, loss, death, new jobs, lost jobs, promotions, addiction overcoming. You've experienced death of people that you love. You've relocated. Your marriage has evolved or it's fallen apart. You have children now. You've retired. You're going to school. You just graduated from school. How are you? You started a business, you lost a business, you're recovering from an injury, you're recovering from an illness, you, your children have gone on to college. Have you checked in with you? 
Some of you, your children left and you don't know who your spouse is. How are y'all? You got divorced last year. How are you doing? You've changed your career. You're doing great at work, but you've lost. You're grieving the loss of something. You, you got a new house. You paid off debt. Life has changed. You've lost weight. You've gained weight. How are you? And not just how are you, but who are you? For some of you, you've lost yourself. You've lost your motivation. You've lost your energy. You've lost you. You've gotten hard and sensitive. You're easily offended. You're constantly angry, and I've been sent by God today to stop you before you make a decision that could harm you. Here's the three questions I want to ask you, and I'm going to use my whiteboard to help me with this. Here's three questions I would ask you to get your motivation back. Number one, where's your mind at? Here's the three things I've learned about mindsets, and I'm going to give you this really quickly. So where's your mind at? First of all, I believe there's three types of mind. There's small minds, there's average minds, and there's genius minds. Small minds talk about people in the past. Average minds talk about ideas and the present, and genius minds talk about the future and vision. I'm trying to help somebody here today, I hope. Here's the thing, a lot of us, every single person in this room has some place where our minds are small. No judgment. But then you need to offset the places where you know all you do is talk about people in the past with people who were talking about vision in the future. Who are the individuals in your life where are invested in your future and in your vision? Where is your mind a genius? Because here's what Jesus did. Jesus didn't die for you to look backwards and talk about his creation and people. He died that you might have life and live it to the fullest. If you are stuck here, you can't be big when little's got you. Somebody put that on X or Twitter, whatever it is now. You can't be big when little's got you. So I'm curious for you, if you, where's your mind at? Where's your mind small? Where's your mind average? And where's your mind great? If you're going to spend your money or your time on something, funnel all your energy here. Because the need to prove yourself is worshiping someone else. I'm worshiping my, your opinion about me, so I feel the need to prove myself to you. That's a small-minded mentality. You don't have to prove yourself. Jesus died so you can live because you have his approval, right? So that's where's your mind at. Secondly, where's your heart? You guys already know how I feel about the heart. Wholehearted life in Jesus is four quadrants, right? You have your thoughts, your desires, your emotions, and your choices. These together, submitted to the cross, is wholehearted life in Christ. When you're able to say, I'm thinking like Christ, my desires reflect Christ, my choices are going to lead someone to Christ, my emotions reflect Lord Jesus, I'm living a wholehearted life in Christ. When one of those are off, it leads you into sin. When one of those are off, I'm now making the thoughts are like Christ, my desires are like Christ, my choices are by emotions, the way that I'm going to portray this, and the way my heart's fixed, off. It can lead you away from where Jesus is. So where's your heart? And we're thinking through, whenever you make a decision, are these things focused on Jesus, and that's wholehearted life in Christ. And then lastly, it's where are your values? And the way that I like naming values is really a scale. And I think that's what John is, Jesus is getting to in the, in the book of Revelation when it comes to Ephesus. If I'm getting to understand my values, I, ha I wanted to be all deep. I wanted to be like, sit here and get all Socratic or Aristotelian. Like, but really, I think values come down to a scale and the balance of your life. On the one side of the scale is where you say, I have to. And the other side of the scale is where I get to. When you look at your life, what are the things you say, I have to do this? And what are the things you say, I get to? What you value is gonna be the stuff you talk about from the heart where I get to. What is bigger for you? I have to be a parent. I have to parent you. I have to be your husband because I don't want anyone to talk about me. I have to be your wife because I don't want to be talked about. No, you're saying I have to. Your heart's not in it. So now you're not living a wholehearted life in Christ. You're saying this is what I have to do, not I get to be, I get to be Courtney's husband. Oh, that's such a privilege. I get to see her be everything God's called. I get to be Camden's father. I get to be friendship's pastor. I get to preach every Sunday. But the moment that moves from get to to have to, is now where I'm showing my values are no longer rooted in Jesus. It's in the opinions of other people. I want you to be mindful in your own life. What do you say you have to? What do you say you get to? Yeah, the questions with that, first of all, is what needs to be removed from your have to side? What needs to be added to your get to side? And then growth is what needs to be strengthened 
that's going to keep the weight over here to ensure that you always stay imbalanced, that I get to be a child of God. I get to be a son of the Lord Jesus Christ. I get to walk in the very image of the Father. I don't have to. I get to. Every head is bowed, every eye is closed. Asking the Holy Spirit one question. What are you saying to me? What are you saying to me? For some of you, you've, you've, you're, you're here and, I mean, life has just been something else for you. And uh, it took everything in you to come to church today. It took everything in you to even think about leaving out of here. And that's not stuff inside of here. I mean, just life. You've took everything in you just to be alive. I want you to take a deep breath. I just want to take a deep breath. Because in this moment, what Jesus is doing is what he told us he'd do, that when I see one sheep run away, I'll come get you. I'll come get you. And right now, for those of you who feel burned out, you feel dead, you feel lost, you feel dazed, you feel confused, you feel like your ministry has just fallen apart, your life is not where you want it to be, Jesus says, no, 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 I'm coming to you today. Turn and see me. Turn and see me. I didn't forget you. I didn't throw you away. I didn't forget who you are. I love you, but I want you to get your motivation back. I want you to get your passion back. I want you to get your fire back. I know it broke you, but I'm telling you, nothing is broken in my eyes. You're perfect in my hands. Father, today I give you my friends give you people, God, who life has been so, so lifing to them. And God, from loss, from pain, from death, to grief, to jobs, to parenting, to homes, to money, to, oh my God, to marriage, to children, to worry. God, there are times I'm talking to parents who, hallelujah, who have put their children to sleep only to go cry in the hallway. I'm talking to spouses who sat in the bathroom, not using the restroom, but just to cry and afraid of what their spouse would see about them. I'm, I'm talking to leaders who weep for those you lead and don't know the next steps to take because you're at your wit's end. I'm, I'm talking to those who are single, who are mad every time you go out to eat you're wondering what when is it going to be my turn and Jesus says I'm coming to get you today you don't you're not so far away that I'll leave the 99 and come grab you and God I thank you that you know where we are I thank you that you know our hearts I thank you God that when we turned away from you you give us a chance today to come back to come back so today God my friends turn our eyes back to you we thank you that you are the author and the finisher of our faith. We thank you that you are the Alpha and the Omega. We thank you that you are the first and the last. We thank you that you know where we are. Yes, we thank you that you see the black spots on our heart and yet you still care. We thank you that you see the wounds on our hearts and you bandage them. We we thank you, God, for every bruise on our ego that you soothe us and soothe our sorrows. We thank you, God, for every place of fear that you come and say, because you're in my hands, do not be afraid. God, I thank you right now for finding my friends where they are before they give up and before they throw in the towel and before they lose their minds and before they jump off a building and before they harm somebody else and before they do something that'll kill their reputation that God right now you find them in the seats they're in right now and grab them with your hands and let them know I know where you are and I know where you're going and you can't die here you can't lose your mind here you can't lose your reputation here you cannot lose what you I've put inside of you here I've invested too much in you for you to give up right now. So right now, Father, hold my friends in your hands. Father, wrap them in your arms and let them know that you know them by name and you know them by their future and you know them by who they are. They are not the lies, yes, that they've told themselves. They are not the lies that they've heard from people at work. They're not the lies they've heard from people at home. They're not the lies they heard, yes, at that family 
family reunion two weeks ago. They're not the lies of what their sin is, but God, they are alive in you. And so, Father, right now, like you talk to the church at Ephesus, talk to my friends and let them know you see them, that you love them, that you care for them, and that they can still get their motivation back. They can get their passion back. They can get their joy back. They can get their peace back. So right now, God, stand up in my friends in the name of Jesus. Stand up in their finances. Stand up in their minds. Stand up in their body. Stand up in their mental health. Stand up in their finances. I wish I had some worshipers. I know I'm over my time limit, but I wish I had somebody who could help me saturate this atmosphere. God, stand up in my marriage. Stand up in my finances. Stand up right now, God, in the name of Jesus. I repent for the times I didn't read my word. I repent for the times I didn't go to my Bible. I repent for the times I didn't trust you at your word. But right now, today, God, I am turning my face back to you. So, Father, stand up and use me as a source to show somebody what repentance and restoration. I need some Holy Ghost-filled folk. I'm ready to go, too. I need some Holy Ghost-filled folk right now. Stand up on my job. Stand up in my home. Stand up in my marriage. Father, I need you before I lose my mind to stand up in me because you've got something in store for me and I give you glory that you know who I am.